0: Um, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you've come out to, to worship with us. If you're our guest uh, this morning, uh, we are um, really glad to have you. Uh, glad that you've uh, taken uh, the time to come and uh, be with us as uh, we celebrate uh, each Sunday morning uh, what Christ has done in our life. I, I see a few folks back with us who have been sick. Uh, we're glad that you're here too, and uh, glad that, that God is working and uh, helping you toward recovery, Um, isn't it good that we can cry out this morning uh, to our God and say, God, I want to see you, and he will answer us, uh, that he's faithful in that. And uh, I'm just always so impressed uh, that that we we don't talk to a God who is off somewhere, not listening, uh, but we can cry out and pray uh, to a God who is close by and who hears us uh, when we pray. Um, We're going to begin in Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 1. If you would like to this morning, I invite you to stand with me in reverence to God's Word. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writing here says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you no longer are a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to the, those that by nature are not God. But now that you that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more you observe days and months and seasons and years i'm afraid i may have labored over you in vain brothers i entreat you become as i am for i also have become as you are you did me no wrong you know it was because of a bodily ailment That I preached the gospel to you first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children from slavery, and is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is a slave with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers of Isaac, are children of promise. But just as the time he was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I hope this morning the Lord will add to the reading and hearing of His Word. You may be seated. This morning, I I want us to think for for the few minutes that we have together about the two options that we have, and we've been presented with these many times over the last several weeks, but um, I think this passage in particular really makes some things clear that are important for us as we live in relationship with Christ and as we live in relationship with one another. We, we have this great grace this great mercy that God has given us. It, it gives us the freedom to live with Him and for Him and in Him. It, it gives us this freedom, as, as Paul mentions early on, that, that the Spirit of Christ is in our hearts and we can cry out to God, not in a formal setting where we think we have to get high and mighty with our prayers, where we think we need to drop back 400 years in the words that we use so that we can speak appropriately to God. But rather, we are given here an amazing freedom that we can speak to God and we can call Him Father. Not Father in some formal sense, but almost in the sense of calling Him Daddy. That we can have that intimate, personal, relationship with God and the unfortunate thing that sometimes happens is that we want to part with that intimate relationship that relationship where God comes up beside us and sometimes has to urge us along like our dad would and sometimes urge us swiftly and painfully to our backside we want to somehow lose that for some stiff and formal relationship where we, we feel like we, we can't come to God. We, we feel like that we aren't worthy to come to God. If you have that feeling, you're not alone because it's not an abnormal feeling except if we are in Christ, God has told us, you are now worthy to come to me. So it's not some self-righteous thing where we we think we're worthy, but God has told us we're worthy. I want us to look this morning at at eight things that this passage tells us that I think will encourage us to, to, to put away those, well, he calls them those elementary principles and to embrace and accept and love the grace that God has given us. And I want us to do it in this measure. I believe this morning that it is absurd for us as believers to try to take ourselves and put ourselves under the law. You've heard about that countless times over the last few weeks. But I believe it's absurd. I believe it's one of those things where if you had... As uh, I illustrated with my children recently, all of us in this room, if I had five $1 bills in my hand, and on, in this hand I had a $100 bill, who's going to take the five if I'm giving it away? <laughs> Good. That makes me feel a lot better about everybody. You're going to take the 100 Right? Now, my kids, they might take the five because there are more of them, and they don't understand the finances of it, although they're getting closer and closer to understanding the finances of it. But that's what you and I trade for. When, when we take this absurd notion of taking the $5 bills instead of the 100 except what God offers us can't be measured in money and we still want to grab a hold of the the 5 $1 bill. A gallon and a half of gas if you're lucky. I want to argue with or for you from the scriptures this morning that it's absurd to try to take those things which God has done away with for us. The first one. Verses 1 through 7, it's absurd To try to follow the law, because under the law, children are like slaves. Look what he argues here, beginning in verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. If you think about that, in the time in which Paul is writing, if you were the child, the eldest son of a wealthy man, all of that that he has is yours. It's going to be yours one day. It's coming to you. But when you're three, four, five years old, you're really not treated in the household a lot differently than they would have treated a slave. You have guardians, you have masters who are overseeing you. If you're the son of a wealthy man, you have a tutor or a teacher who is overseeing you and he is directing your path. And he is telling you what to do, and he is telling you where to go. And until that day that your father sets, you are really no different than one of the slaves. There would be value placed on you because you were the heir, but you had no authority. You had no ability. You couldn't come and go as you please. You couldn't enjoy being your father's son. Yeah, it might have meant that there was something to eat or things like that, but there was no freedom. And Paul says, so really in the end, when you get down to it, when you break it all down, you're really no different than a slave. Someone is going to tell you when to go to bed and when to get up. They're going to tell you what to do. They're going to tell you what to eat. They're going to tell you what you're going to learn. He says, you are basically a slave. And he says, as, as pagans, as you once were, Galatians, that's kind of, you should understand that. He says, you once were a slave to the elementary principles of this world. There at the end of verse 3. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, for the Galatians, they are coming out of a pagan secular religion. So they believed all of this wild and crazy stuff about the way the world worked and, and maybe a number of false gods and, and things that they did in controlling nature. He says, you, you used to be a slave to that. For the Jews that he is talking to and reading this, they once were a slave to the Mosaic law. It, it held them captive. It showed them how sinful they were before God, and they had no ability on their own to get out of it. They had no ability to live up to God's standard. And he says, that's, that's the law. He says, do you really want to go back to that? To, to be living like that? To be a slave to something, and when you think about the law, if you are a slave to it, you have no ability to ever become free. You, you can't work your way out of it. You can't do good enough. You can't be good enough. And so you have no hope and you have no options. And he says, do you really want to go back to that? See, you and I, as believers in Christ, we were once slave to the elementary principles of this world. I love that description because the principles of this world are often thought of as so high and mighty that the people that think them up are so smart. The great philosophers and scientists, they've got all the brain power. And Paul says, well, they're the elementary principles of this age. If you've ever been around kindergartners, you realize they don't know much. I mean, I've got two, and they don't know much. And when they get to first grade and second grade, even though they have thought by that time they know everything, they don't know much. And that's what Paul says. He says, these are basic principles. Do you really want to be a slave to those things again? We as Christians have been freed from that. We have been freed from those elementary principles. He says we're no longer slaves, but look in verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We've been elevated. Almost like we've matured. No longer a child. No longer the child who is protected by a guardian, and Paul is thinking here of the law, but, but a son a prince, a princess of the king. We have been elevated to an heir of God. When we decide that we're going to go back in and we're going to try to work it out ourselves, we're going to try to do it on our own, we're going to try to make it on our own, what we do is we reduce ourselves back to elementary slaves. We reduce ourselves back to the the ignorance that we were once in when we did not know Christ. Paul says, why would you want to do that? You've been set free by God. He has redeemed us out of slavery and has adopted us as sons. Why? Why would we want to go back? Why would we want to impose that on anyone? The law is absurd because under the law we live as slaves. Number two, it's because under the law we will not know God. Look in verse 8. Formerly." When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who were by nature, or who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by Him, how can you go back? He says, before you didn't know God. And what's interesting about that is he he makes the connection here that under the law, People didn't know God. Now, I don't want to say that if you read the Old Testament, you see that people don't know God. That's obviously not what he's talking about. But if you go back and look at the Old Testament, how did people have fellowship with God? Well, they had to go to somebody. Except for a very select few that God had a personal relationship with, you had to go to somebody. You had to go seek someone out. You had to go hear a word from a prophet. You had to go to a priest and, and beg and plead with him. Will you go beg and plead with God for me? They didn't really know God. I mean, look at what happens when God's presence appears on the mountain there. In, in the book of Exodus, we see that the people are scared. They, they run away. As a matter of fact, they say, we, we don't, God, don't come back to, and talk to us. Come back and talk to Moses, that's fine, but don't come talk to us. We, we can't take it. We can't handle you talking to us. Paul says, listen, you formerly did not know God, and now you do know God. Not because you figured out who He was, but because He came to know you. See, if we, if we want to be under the old way, if we want to do things the old way, we don't get to know God. That's kind of the choice that you have to make. I mean, it seems kind of easy to me. On one hand, you know God. On the other hand, you don't know God. And that's what he lays out for them. They did not know him. They knew their pagan religions. They knew their rituals. They, they did not know who God was. But they, they found out who he was. Paul came to them and he preached the gospel to them and they knew God. But if they turned back to the law now, they would not know God. He would be foreign to them. They would have to do their rituals, they would have to do their activities, they would have to try to keep the law, and then, then they, well, they would still be where they're at. They wouldn't know God. We as believers have come to be known by God. God didn't hear about us because we were doing something great. He he didn't look down in Burke County and go, hey, that guy right there, he's doing something good, I want to get to know that guy hey, this girl over here, she's, she's doing a lot for the church. She's involved in missions. She's really active. I want to get to know her. Now, God looked down and He said, that's mine. And He said, he's mine. And she's mine. That one over there, he's mine. I'm going to call that one right there, she's mine. That's what God did. God called us to Himself. And... And Paul says, why would you want to go back from that? Why would you want to turn away from the God who has called you? To me, that sounds absurd, but that's exactly what they were doing. They were beginning to turn away from what they had been told. They were beginning to turn away from the God who loved them and cared for them. And Paul saw it as absurd. If we want to put ourselves under the law, we become like slaves. We will not know God. And thirdly... We'll worry about those things that aren't really important. Now, we're guilty of this anyways. You and I, as human beings, are very guilty of worrying about things that aren't really important. Like, we, we get worked up over stuff that just doesn't really matter. And I'm not talking about things that, that, that aren't serious. Like, yeah, you know, I'm looking at, I, I love football, you'll find this out, especially as August and comes around. Um, I look at football news every single day. Without fail, every single day, I look and see what's going on in the NFL, and what I see is the Panthers are not signing enough free agents. And they need to be signing more players, because we were really bad last year, and we need to be a lot better this year. And I worry about that, because I hate to see them lose, and you get really bad sermons when the Panthers are doing really bad. Preach on... Hell and sin and stuff like that. But I'm not even talking about things that really don't matter, like football. And I I can't believe I just said that, but I did. But, like, we worry about things that we can't even control. We worry about our children, and we worry about our finances, and we worry about our future. And there is, there is, those are important things, but we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything to give ourselves even one more day. Well, what Paul is pointing out here is they begin to worry about things that don't even matter as much as your family and your finances and your future he says beginning of verse 9b he says how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more you observe days and months and seasons and years I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain he says, on one hand, they're turning back to these elementary principles that they once left. The Galatians here, again, as, as pagans, they're, they're turning back and worrying again about those gods that they had looked at before and those traditions that they had kept before. But now also, in verse 10, he says, but you observe days and months and seasons and years. And you go, well, preacher, I, it's Sunday and it's 2013 and it's April and spring is finally here. Hopefully. Hopefully. But what he's talking about here is they are observing the ritual days of the Jewish feasts. They are, they are keeping the Jewish law. They're worried about celebrating the Passover. They're worried about celebrating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They're worried about celebrating these things. And he's like, why? You're not even Jews. You're not, you're not even, you're You're Gentiles. You've been saved by this. this. This has no power. If you have been saved by grace, you can't be saved by works. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. He says you can't have both, but that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to live and kind of mix all this stuff together. And, you know, we we're really good about doing this as Americans. Like, there are Christians who I'm sure if you got deep down with them and they got honest, you know, you, the 4th of July is a Christian holiday. I mean, there's, there's people, come on, let's be honest. Thanksgiving is one of the Christian holidays. There will be people that would say if you don't celebrate Christmas correctly and by correctly Santa Claus and reindeer that there's something wrong with you. Now, you're laughing about that. You say, surely there aren't people like that, but there are people that may never admit that, but in their minds, they've got that in their head. There's there's some connection between being a good American and a good Christian, and somehow those things are, are the same. But, but Paul says, listen, if you've been saved by grace, you don't need to worry about things that aren't important. You don't need to to concern yourself with this, Paul is confused. How do you go from loving Christ to going back to the way you used to be? Thankfully, you and I as believers under the grace of God, do not have to watch our calendar for our salvation. Our salvation is not tied up in being at the right place at the right time, in keeping the right holidays. That's what the law was about. That's what the law required but not so for us as believers. See, the law will begin to make us forget what is important. We will put our emphasis on those things that really don't matter, and we'll forget about the gospel. We'll forget about being called to share the good news of Christ with a world that is lost and dying, because we'll be caught up in our calendar and making sure we're at the right place. We'll be caught up in our rituals and making sure we're doing those things. Paul says it shouldn't be so. Fourthly, under the law we will live as something we are not. He says, Brothers, in verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What what does he, he mean there? Well, Paul has come to them, and he did not come to them as a Jew wanting them to become Jewish. He did not come to them wanting them to be something that they weren't. He comes to them with the grace of the gospel. He comes to them preaching Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, all those things that I used to be under, under the law, when I used to to keep the rituals, when I used to watch my calendar, when I used to make sure I did this, this, and this. He says, I've given that up. He says, I've done away with it. I have become as you are. He's saying, I am living like a Gentile, if you will. He has set aside the law in his life so that he can preach the freedom of Christ. I don't believe this is a slow process. If you look at Paul's life, you see that it it is years and years and years after he is saved before he begins preaching. He had been the most religious of the religious. He had followed the law to the letter. He had done everything that he ever thought was important for his salvation. And it took him years to reprogram his life so that he could go and share the good news of Christ with other people. You and I, if we examine our lives, I think we'll find a lot of places where we have really got up on our high horse and we are really good about looking down at other people. And it takes a long time to get that out of our life. It takes us a long time to realize that it's not us who will change people, but it is the gospel of Christ. It takes a long time for us to realize that it takes the gospel to change people before people will change So often, so often we expect that people are going to clean up their lives and then they can come to Christ. That that they're going to straighten up. They're going to stop doing that stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And listen, they shouldn't be doing it. But they don't know any better. Because it's only the gospel that will change people. It's only Christ who will change people. It's only Him invading someone's life that will change them. See, the gospel of Christ is freeing. It brings joy. He asked them in verse 15, What then has become of your blessedness? They have begun to take on all these other things. They have begun to try to do these other things to please God. And it's ruined their joy. It's taken it out of their life. They no longer have it to hold on to. And Paul can see it he says, what's happened to you? They've got to the point where they are inflicting these things on themselves. Where they're trying to make themselves be something they're not. And it's taken away their joy. Fifthly, we, verse 16, under the law we will misjudge the truth. He says, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What an odd question. Here is the guy who had come to them and shared with them the gospel. I remember very clearly the man who shared with me the gospel, I know that I had heard it time and time again, but that time where God spoke to my heart and saved me from my sin. The summer of 1995, First Baptist Church, Taylorsville, North Carolina. We were back behind the sanctuary in a conference room, and the pastor shared with me the gospel, and I prayed to receive Christ. And what's interesting about that man, I would meet him years later, Did not speak to him after that day. It was 10 years later when I spoke to him. And I knew in that moment we had very little in common. The way that I believed went this way and the way that he believed went that way. And I don't know why God chose that man in that moment for me to accept Christ. But I'm glad he did. And under no circumstances could I ever think about that man being my enemy. Because he spoke words to me that radically changed my life. And yet Paul asked them here, am I your enemy? Have I become your enemy? Their judgment, their beliefs had been so distorted that they had come to view Paul as their enemy. Others had come into their church and had told them things that were wrong. They had told them they needed to be under the law. They had told them they needed to do all of these things to be good Christians. They needed to keep these holidays. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. They needed to remember all of that. If they were going to be good Christians. And what that had done is polluted their mind to the point... Where Paul, as he tells the truth, now looks like their enemy. See, I think the law does that to us. The law, if we let it penetrate our heart where the gospel is supposed to be. If we try to impose our... Rules or our regulations on people who don't know Christ, if we try to impose things on people for their salvation, I I think what it begins to do is it distorts the truth for us. You've all seen this done, haven't you? Where somebody will say something like, well, the Bible says this. They can't find it in there. Well, the Bible says this, and you read it, and they've taken it. Far, far out of its context. Well, the Bible says you can't do this and God may be saying it to a certain situation and he didn't proclaim it for everything. You have to watch when you're reading Paul. He will sometimes say this is my preference. This is not what I got from the Lord. Or this is for this church. And we want to grab it up. And we want to run with it. Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. If we want to know the truth we have to search out the scriptures we have to be a student of god's word we have to know what god's word actually says not what we have heard it might say because if we do it any other way then we will begin to misjudge the truth jesus christ says that he is the way the truth and the life his message of grace is how we judge the truth we have his word we have been given his word and that's how we judge the truth these galatians had had heard this false doctrine and it had led them astray and so now when paul came back and would would begin to teach them and would begin to talk when he would send a letter like this it would become to them as a lie because their truth had been so distorted I encourage you to often evaluate what you believe is true. To often be thinking about what God has said. Because he is the author of truth. But let me promise you this, that Satan loves to come in. And he loves to distort our views of the truth. He loves to give us false morality. He loves to put into our mind that somehow we are better than someone else. Or somehow our beliefs are more correct than someone else when... In reality, we may believe the same thing as someone else, and Satan's just trying to divide us. We have to watch this because under the law, we will misjudge the truth. Number six, we listen to the wrong voices. Number 17 he's, or verse 17, he says, "They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them." The Judaizers that had come to Galatia, they were leading people astray. And they didn't know any better because they're listening to the wrong voices. We, we need to be real careful who we listen to. We need to be real mindful of who we listen to. Not every book that you buy at the Christian bookstore is of the same value. Not every preacher that is, that is preaching on the radio is saying the same thing. We've got to be very careful. Especially when it comes to our, our kids. We have got to watch carefully what they're seeing. Because listen, if you let them hear it, if I let them hear it, isn't that endorsing it? Rachel and I were having a conversation the other day about how much on TV is, is encouraging children to lie. But we just had it this morning. There was a cartoon on while the kids are getting ready, and and it was fairy princess something, something terrible, I'm sure. And trust me, I I'd to, to turn that junk off. I hate SpongeBob is better than that stuff. Um, personal opinion, not doctrine, not a word from the Lord, just making that clear. But the fairy princesses or whatever broke a window. Have experience with this. I let my sister break many windows when we were children. Breaks the window. How do we keep from telling mom and dad? How do we keep from telling mom and dad? Well, let's cover it up. Let's cover it up. Let's distract mom and dad. Let's distract mom and dad. Let's go get some wizard or sorcerer or something to fix the window. No, you broke the window. Get your whooping and move on. But that's not what the voices that our children are hearing are teaching them. A judge ruled on Friday that children of any age should be able to go to a pharmacy and get a morning-after pill with no prescription and with no parent. Any age. That's the voices that our children are hearing. That's the voices that you are hearing. I've been to school for the last ten years straight. And I have to be very mindful of the voices I allow myself to hear when it comes to the things that I believe. Because I've got a natural trust of people. I want to believe that because someone's got doctor behind their name or or professor in front of their name that they should be telling the truth when the reality is many times they are not. We have to watch that. And when we get caught up in the law, when we get caught up in a false morality, we will listen to people that sound good. We will listen to politicians who seem to be saying the things we want them to hear, or, they want, or that we want to hear. We have to be careful, because the Galatians here, they, they hear the voice of these religious leaders. But these are voices that would lead them straight to hell. Paul says, be careful, because you're listening to the wrong people. We do not have to listen to the voice of the world as people under grace. We do not have to listen to voices that want to make us slaves once again. Listen, Christ has died to make us free. It is His voice we should be listening to. It's His word we should be engaging. We do not have to live lives as slaves. We do not have to listen to any voice but that of God. Two more. Number seven, we do not grow in Christ if we are under the law. He says in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says, listen, I came here the first time And I gave birth to this church. And it was painful. It was hard. He says, now it feels like I'm having to come back and give birth to all of you again. It feels like I'm having to start over. It feels like you didn't listen the first time. It feels like you didn't get it the first time. He says, so I'm having to come back and go through this anguish of childbirth once again. Well, how would you have to do that? Well, because they haven't been growing. You know, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus tells him he must be born again. He says, how does a grown man enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now, Jesus was talking about spiritual birth in John chapter 3, but Nicodemus made a really good point, because physically it's not happening again. Physically, a grown man is not going to be born again, Physically. Well, Paul's talking about physically here. Paul's saying, I'm having to do it all over again because you're still babies. You've not grown any. You've not matured in your faith. You're not getting older. You're still drinking the milk instead of eating the meat. That's what happens when we get under the law. That's what happens when we begin worrying about things that really don't matter. That's what happens when we begin uh, doing the things that aren't important. We don't grow. We don't mature in Christ. We don't become what He wants us to be. We, we, don't, we don't get bigger. We don't get uh, more powerful. We don't get stronger. We, we don't do those things because we're not growing. So that's kind of the options you got. What's odd is those people that, that live under the law, that, that live under all these rules that they have set for themselves, they... They seem like they're awfully spiritual. We may even point to their life and go, man, they got it all together. You know, look at him. I mean, he's at church every time the doors are open. He, he, he gives. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. They, they seem to be doing great. But, but what you don't realize is he's not really growing in his faith because he's, he's letting all that be enough. See, growing in your faith means that naturally you want to be at church more. You want to give to the things of God. You want to love your wife. You want to love your kids. Growing in Christ means all of those things and a million times more. But when we just want to do those things, I'm just going to be good to my kids. I'm going to be good to my wife. I'm going to be at church three weekends a month. That ought to be good enough. When we set those as our, our rules, they, they've got nothing. We don't, we don't grow But in Christ, we we should be growing. Living in Christ is about growing in Him. We learn and understand who He is. When those voices come at us from the world, we repel them because we know that they're incorrect. We know that they're wrong. We should grow in such a way that we're not distracted by the law. We are focused like a laser on the Gospel. We are focused on our mission in this world. Again, if, if you're focused on Christ, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of distractions to get you into those things that you're trying to avoid by keeping the law. It's kind of hard to treat your wife poorly when you're focused on the cross. It's kind of hard to be a bad parent when you're, when you're focused on the cross. It's, it's kind of hard not to be in church in fellowship with believers when you're, you're focused on the cross. That's where it's going to lead you. We won't grow outside of Christ working in our heart. And lastly, number eight, under the law, we're going to get distracted from the promise. If you're here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about when Abraham was given the promise that he would be the father of many nations and that his offspring would be blessed. And Paul tells us that when God says offspring there, he says one because he's talking about Christ. Well here he, he brings back up Abraham and the story I, I hope you're familiar with it where Abraham has been promised that he is going to have a son and he doesn't and he's, he's very old and so his wife comes in with this great plan. I've never really thought it was that great a plan. It's actually kind of odd but but he come, she comes in with this plan. I'm going to give you my slave and her name is Hagar and you're going to have a baby with her and God's going to fulfill his promise. That's not at all the promise that God had made. Not even close to the promise that God had made. Not even at all what God wanted Abraham to do, but that's what they decide to do. And as soon as the baby's born, Sarah's mad about it. And so there's all this fighting and turmoil that goes on, that sort of thing, but needless to say, God, as always, keeps his promise. And so Abraham and Sarah have a son. So now Abraham has two sons, Isaac being from Sarah, and Ishmael being from Hagar. There's a lot more of that story. It's a really good one. Go read it in Genesis. I encourage you to do so. Paul gives this example, though, and he says, when Sarah doesn't believe and, and gives Hagar to Abraham, we, we see what they're doing in the flesh. We see the sin that is being carried on. The fleshly disobedience points them to the slave, and it distracts them from the promise. God had promised them this great thing, but because in their heart they thought they could do it themselves, because they thought they knew better than God, they thought they could do better than God, they, they bring somebody else in. Let's go get Hagar, because that way we can take care of the problem. It distracts them from what God had planned. In many ways, it it messes up part of what God had planned. It was supposed to be Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And they bring bring these others into it. They bring something else into it. They, they, They get distracted from what God has promised them. This great thing that God has said, I'm going to give you. And they go off and do something else. We need to be careful that we do not get distracted from the promise. If we want to follow a false morality, if we want to build up these things that we think that we've got to do to be saved, if we want to add to what God has called us to do as believers in Christ, it will distract us from the promise that God has made to us in Christ Jesus. We'll get caught up in doing that. Because trust me, on your own, it will be a full-time job just for you to be a good spouse or a good parent. It will be a full-time job for you not only to do your job, but to be a good employee. It will consume you simply trying to do that. If you want to be a good church member, that's going to take all of your time for you on your own to be a good church member. So if you want to do those things for yourself, you're going to make for yourself an infinite number of full-time jobs, and you in the end will fail at each and every one of them. Or we can stay focused on the promise. Our flesh will tell us that we are not good enough. Our flesh will try to invent for us other ways of doing it. We will sit around and contemplate how we can make it work and never realize that we can't do it on our own. Or we can focus on the promise. That's what the law does. It's what our flesh does. It distracts us from realizing the promises of God. It distracts us from realizing that... In and of ourselves, we are completely incapable. But in Christ, we are able to do abundantly more. In Christ, we are able to do each and everything that He has called us. I've heard people say that that maybe God will never put on us more than we can handle. I think many times He pushes us just to see how far He can take us. He knows that There are not some things that we can do. There are not a few things that we can do. But in him we can do all things. The law will distract us from that promise. So my question would be, why why would you be trying to do it any other way? For the Galatians, they're failing at it. They've lost their joy, their blessedness. They're, they're treating their spiritual father like he was a liar. They are, they, they're falling apart. This good church that God could do so much with, it's, it's falling apart because they are not thinking about what Christ has done for them. It's absurd to me that we try to follow the law. Because the law is not a means to salvation. The law is showing us our guilt before God. But, oftentimes, we we want to advocate the law. And we need to watch this. I want to give us two quick things, and I'm going to close. We need to make sure that we are not telling people that are lost that they must follow the law. Again, we can't tell people, you're lost, clean up your life, and then you can come in and hear about the gospel. All of you here who know Christ came to Christ through the gospel. And You might have been five years old at Vacation Bible School in the safest place you could be. Or God might have called you out of some of the worst circumstances imaginable. Some of you here were vile sinners. You had done terrible things and God saved you. He didn't save you because you cleaned your life up. He didn't save you because you stopped doing those things you shouldn't have been doing. He didn't save you because you you laid off the booze and put down the drugs. He didn't save you because of that. He might have saved you from that. He called you out of that. we as Christians cannot go through this life and tell people they've got to get their lives straight before they can come to God. Because we will will have missed the mark greatly. We will never see anyone saved. We will never see Christ change lives. Because that's not how God works. If God had wanted to work like that, I am completely sure He could have. If God had said, you know what? I'm a good and righteous God, and you're going to get better before you come to me, or you're never going to come. But if He had said that, none of us would have any hope. The second area we've got to watch this in is we can't be like the Judaizers. And we've seen this so many times in our lives. When somebody has come to Christ and he has broken their heart, he has has broken their life, he has shown them that they were in desperate need of him, and they come to him and they are radically saved. And then you've got the people that want to step right in and tell them, okay, now that you're a Christian. Immediately, your life better get better. If you saw the news in the last 24 hours, what you saw is that the pastor of the largest Southern Baptist church in this country had his son take his own life Friday night. Rick Warren, the pastor at Saddleback Community Church in California, spent Friday evening with his son, and his son went home and took his life a lifetime of of mental illness, a lifetime of difficulty, and it ended there. Friends, if that can happen to that family, if that family can have to deal with hardship and difficulty, then any of us can. We have got to be careful that we are showing people who come to Christ grace. That we hold people accountable. That we point out to them when they've messed up. But we do so with grace. That we do so realizing that we ourselves are imperfect. and We do so realizing that not everyone's going to live just like us. Not everyone's going to do things just like we do. Not everyone's going to make the same decisions we make. Friends, we've got to keep this out of our lives. We've got to preach the grace of Christ. We've got to preach the good news of the gospel. When Christ saves people, he will change their lives. He will do so through our discipleship. He will do so through our preaching and through our ministry. But we have got to preach the good news of Christ if people are going to come to him. Let's embrace the freedom that we've been given in Christ. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. If you're a believer here this morning and you're doing something you shouldn't be, you know better. I know you know better because I've got that same voice in my heart that tells me. But we've got freedom to serve him, not to be a slave. We've got freedom to rest in his arms. We've got freedom to resist sin. We've got freedom to grow in Christ. We've got freedom to listen to his voice. The law to us is absurd. To think that you can work your way to God is foolishness. It won't work. But this morning, he says, you don't have to work your way to me. He says, I'm standing here with open arms. I'm standing here ready to welcome you. Not a cleaned up, clean shaven, suit and tie version of you. I'm ready to accept you as you are. That's what he's saying to us this morning. Many of you in this room are believers. You're going to go back out tomorrow. You're going to go to your workplace. You're going to go and socialize with your friends. Are you presenting Christ as one who is standing there with open arms? One, are you presenting Christ at all? If not, that's where you're to start. But when you present Christ, are you telling folks, Hey, my God is standing there with open arms waiting on you. What would happen at the place that you work? What would happen in our community? What would happen in our schools if tomorrow we presented Christ as the God who has open arms waiting to welcome? The God who came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're here this morning you don't know Christ, you're bound to the elementary principles of this world, whatever that is for you. You're you're bound to something. You're serving yourself. You're serving the things of this world. You care about your money or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. This morning, God stands with open arms waiting for you. He offers you life. He offers you grace. He offers you peace. He offers you forgiveness. He offers it no matter what you've done. This morning, would you come to him? Would you come to him broken? Would you come to him unable to do it on your own? Would you come to Christ? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are... God, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you, you love us. While we are sinners, God, you have died for us. While we are unable to come to you, while we are unable to work out anything, when we're unable to to work our way to you, to to crawl our way to you, to walk our way to you while we're unable at all. Your word reminds us that you have come to know us, that you have called us. God, I I pray that you're speaking to hearts this morning. You're speaking to the hearts of believers who, who need to present you is the God with open arms. God, you're speaking in the hearts of those who who need to run to you now that your arms are open. They need to to come to you this morning. They need to, to fall on their face and ask for your love and your forgiveness. They need to trust in your grace. God, there are those here, and I pray that you're speaking to them. God, we're grateful that you're so good, that you're so mighty. God, that you save sinners like us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of of invitation. And an invitation not to just come up to the front or to talk to me, but an invitation to respond to God's word. He has called us to go into the world in which we live and present... His good news with a world that is lost and dying. And if you are here this morning and you know Him, that is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. It's what God has called us to, to be a light into the darkness. And so often we, we resist that because we see the ugliness around us, we see the world around us, and we see their darkness, and we just we don't know how we could tolerate it. But God has said that He is the one who speaks into the darkness. Would you respond? Whatever way God is speaking to you this morning as we sing. Well, uh, it was good to see you this morning. And uh, got um, go ahead and grab these. We got some good news uh, this morning. Um, Paul and Vanda and Ty are coming this morning to uh, unite with our church in membership. And uh, we will uh, be submitting their names uh, to you on the uh, uh, at, the next, at the next business meeting, uh, coming up in, in a little while. Uh, but they have come this morning, been, been coming here uh, a lot longer than I have. And, uh, so, uh, uh, but I trust that you're going to welcome them, and uh, we're glad that have, they have made that decision. And I want to encourage you, if you are a regular attender here, and uh, uh, you are not a member, uh, I would love to sit down with you sometime and talk to you about becoming a member. Uh, It may not seem to be that important of a thing to you, uh, but I want to promise you that being a member is more than now you're in that pool of candidates to get conned into being on some committee. Uh, We don't have committees. We have teams. I mean, it's completely different. Um, Yeah. Uh, But, you know, being a part of a local body, uh, I believe, is part of our commitment to Christ uh, because you read very little of a description uh, in the New Testament about people out doing things on their own. Uh, Even Paul is sent as a missionary uh, by the body of faith. And uh, being a part of the body means that we have uh, more hands to reach and more feet to go, uh, not just people to sit in committee meetings because nobody likes that. Um, Anybody who likes that, we will use you during nominating time, I'm sure. Uh, But it's more about having more folks on board to do the ministry that God has called us to do. And so uh, I would encourage you, if you're not a member but you've been visiting with us, I'd love to sit down and talk to you about that and how to be a member of the church and what that entails. Uh, But we're glad they have come this morning and uh, are going to unite with us. And I want to challenge you as we go out from this place uh, to go out realizing that God has given us something so extraordinary, so great. And as we go out from this place, we can go and share it with people who are hurting. Uh, Lives will be changed. Uh, People will be changed. Families will be changed. If we are obedient to what God has called us to do in sharing his gospel with a world that is lost and dying. Um, We're getting ready to be dismissed to our lag and our Sunday school. Does anybody have any other announcements that they want to mention? All right. It was good to see you this morning. Uh, I hope this week you're able to enjoy some warmer weather, some pollen-filled allergy-attacking weather, and we'll all breathe together again uh, next Sunday morning. Let me pray for you and we will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good to us. Your love endures forever. We do not deserve all that you have given us. We do not deserve your goodness, and your grace, but God, you have given it to us anyway. And I just pray that as we go from this place, as we go to study your word more in depth, uh, that you will speak to the hearts and lives of the people gathered here. Uh, That we will dig in your word, and we will love your word, and that God, you will just challenge us and encourage us with your message. God, bring us back here to worship again. God, we thank you for those who have come to unite with our church this morning. God, we function as a body. God, help us as one body of faith to minister, God, to our community and around the world. Help us do so with joy and love, sharing your gospel with everyone we meet. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.